Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema, with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the social and political themes, specifically in the work of Stanley Kramer and Cindy Lumet. I hope you all enjoy, and let's get right to it. The first director we are going to talk about today is Stanley Kramer. According to the article, Why Was Stanley Kramer So Unfashionable at the Time of His Death, written by David Walsh for WSWS.org, the article states, Kramer never apparently on the radical level, even in his youth, associated himself with New Deal liberalism. In a revealing comment, he told writer Donald Spotto in the late 1970s, I was brought into the film world in the era of Franklin Roosevelt, an era noted for the liberal approach. Now, nothing is more anthema in the present day than the liberal approach. It's called the failure approach. That's the one that promised a good deal and didn't deliver it. I've been the flag bearer of that viewpoint and therefore somewhat viciously attacked along the way for being part of a do-good era, but I never started off a film with a message. If to make a film contemporary and provocative, if to make film drama out of what is already drama, it is to communicate a message that I am guilty. What I love about this quote is that Kramer is recognizing the impact that he had when making these films during the time that he made them. Because he was able to make movies with liberal social messages in an era where those ideas were frowned upon. And he was often going up against a more conservative, narrow-minded ideology. Especially when you think about a lot of the political tensions in the 50s and the 60s in particular. The article continues to state, he or she was obliged to cover up essential truths about American life, the existence of class exploitation, the brutal reality of U.S. imperialism, and offer with whatever degree of criticism a sanitized and officially approved version of social reality. What I love about Kramer's films is that he often highlighted aspects of American life that were not talked about and were often kept hidden or pushed under the rug in a lot of ways. And one example of this would be his film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. If you look at this film today, it definitely isn't as progressive as it was in the 60s. But when it came out in the 60s, it was considered incredibly revolutionary in a way because it's a movie about an interracial couple and the tensions involved. And the film started a really interesting conversation about race. And in regards to Joey's character in particular, there's a really huge amount of ignorant optimism with her. She brings John in, who is her boyfriend that she just met on a whim, and she's white and John is African American. And, you know, the term ignorance is bliss, I think, is very relevant in this film in a way, because John and Joey's dad, Matt, are constantly trying to warn her of how hard things will be for them if they are together and once they get married and have children together and start a family and Joey's mom just wants her to be happy. But there's a lot of underlying tension as far as race goes within the film. If you look at it today, it definitely isn't as impactful or revolutionary. In fact, you can see a lot of problems within the movie simply because of how ignorant the story is in a way and how ignorant Joey's character is in particular. Because Joey and John, I mean, they meet at the beginning of the film and then Joey brings them to dinner and 
boom, they get their parents together and they tell their parents that they're going to get married. And there's not a lot of backstory to that. My friend Ben was a guest on the podcast a couple months ago, and him and I had talked about this movie a couple of times, and he mentioned how Joey and John's relationship feels so unrealistic in a way, simply because we don't really know how they came to be, and they don't really seem like they fit together. It was more of a relationship that was just thrown into the midst of, of the film, so the film was able to have some kind of social or political message, in a way. And that message is very important when it comes to race and interracial couples, but the way that it was handled definitely doesn't have the same amount of weight now as it did in the 60s. I think because this movie came out in 1967, racism was a lot more prevalent in that particular decade, and because of that, that is why the movie has made the kind of impact that it has made within that particular time period. But if you look back at it now, it definitely doesn't carry the same amount of weight simply because times have shifted and times have changed and there's a lot more of a serious conversation around representation and race now and it is looked at differently now than it has been looked at in the past. Overall, Stanley Kramer's films do a really great job of highlighting the inner and counter-revolutions of our times. And his films really do reflect the concept of being able to stand up for human rights to achieve the happiness and well-being of ourselves and others. And I think because of that, his heart was always in the right place and he always had the right ideas. I think that because he was able to make films in an era that didn't really support a lot of these liberal ideologies, it was hard to really appreciate the kinds of stories that he was able to tell just because of the divide between society when it came to religion and politics. But I think that Stanley Kramer was incredibly bold and incredibly brave for bringing issues to light that wouldn't have been brought up otherwise. The Stanley Kramer film that we will be talking about today is Inherit the Wind. This movie was written by Nedrick Young and Harold Jacob Smith and was based on the play by Jerome Lawrence and was directed by Stanley Kramer. This film is about a Tennessee school teacher in the 1920s named Bertram Cates who is played by Dick York. He is put on trial for violating the Butler Act, which is a state law that prohibits public school teachers from teaching evolution instead of creationism. Drawing intense national attention in the media, writer E.K. Hornbeck, played by Gene Kelly, reports, while two of the nation's leading lawyers, Matthew Harrison Brady, played by Frederick March, and Henry Drummond, played by Spencer Tracy, go head-to-head -head for the defense. The themes of this film are freedom of thought, intellectualism, and counter-revolution. The theme of freedom of thought is one of the most important and main themes of this film. Cates teaches his students about evolution as a way for them to think for themselves instead of relying on what one piece of information tells them, and in this case it's the Bible, and he wants to be able to give his students the opportunity to think of a life beyond what the Bible teaches. I think this point is very intellectual and intricate in itself because there's a quote that Hornbeck says in the movie at one point where he says, the Bible is a book. It's a good book, but it's not the only book. 
From the very beginning of the film, it is very clear that these three men, E.K. Hornbeck, Henry Drummond, and Bertram Cates, are fighting against a town that strongly believes in the ways of the Bible. And it becomes very obvious that whatever goes against the Bible means ruining the reputation of the town. With Hornbeck and Drummond in particular coming in and being the defense for Cates, they come in to disrupt the quote-unquote status quo of the town, and they create a lot of chaos in the midst of religious tensions because they're going up against a town that doesn't believe in changing their ways or thinking outside of what they've formed as their own normality. There is a really great line that Hornbeck says when he first comes to the town. The town is called Hillsborough, and Hornbeck and Drummond label the town Heavenly Hillsborough because it's a Bible-thumping town, as they would say. And Hornbeck says, I had a clean place to live, and then I came here. And I think that that quote is just so witty and quick and smart because it's at a point in a movie where Hornbeck is seeing the realities of what a warped way of thinking is like. And he is discovering what it's like to be on the opposite end of town because where he comes from, he is very much able to think for himself and live the way that he wants to live. He's not used to coming into a society and into an environment where... They are so heavy-handed on their own beliefs and their own ideologies that they don't really care about other beliefs or opinions except for their own. Which leads into the film of intellectualism because there is a huge fight over intellect over power. Some of these students testified to admitting that they enjoyed what Cates was teaching them because they liked the idea of learning about life outside of religion and outside of what everybody else has taught them regarding that the Bible is the only way to go. What I love about those particular little mini scenes in between the conflict as a whole show that the reality is that there are many different ways of learning about the world and life that don't have to do with the Bible. And beyond that, the movie really does have a really great commentary on being able to discover your own path outside of what religion expects you to be. It's very clear throughout the whole entire movie as a whole that Hillsborough doesn't want to change their ways. They have become very compliant with their narrow-minded ideologies and concepts to the point where they don't think a life outside of the Bible exists. When it comes to the big courtroom scene between Henry Drummond and Matthew Brady, Drummond reminds Brady that God gave us the ability to think and questions whether or not Brady believes that a man should have the same amount of privileges to think and speak for himself, which leads to the theme of counter-revolution. The definition of counter-revolution is a revolution directed toward overthrowing a government or social system established by a previous revolution. And this is exactly what Drummond and Hornbeck set out to prove. They are in the midst of writing a new narrative for the town, and they are trying to bring back the authority that free thinking is what makes a society diverse, rather than sticking to a set of quote-unquote old-fashioned expectations based on what religion tells us we should believe. And in that case, they are really fighting for the ability of individualism, of being able to be an individual in your own space and inhabit the space with your own creative thoughts and ideas that isn't dictated by what somebody else perceives. 
I think the film ending really does represent the idea of being able to think for yourself and being able to be individualized because Brady ends up being really affected by German's questioning and he collapses from a heart attack because of it. I think it's that old cliche of, oh, the strain is too much, so I'm going to kill off this character. But in spite of that, despite their differences, Drummond is very accepting of Brady's beliefs and he definitely symbolizes the ideology of respecting people's beliefs and opinions in a neutral form. And that is what drives the last scene between Drummond and Hornbeck. Hornbeck calls Drummond a hypocrite and a fraud because he can't understand why someone would support someone else who thinks so narrow-mindedly. But at the same time, he's able to recognize that Drummond is open and accepting enough to respect all beliefs. And there's a few other lines in that last scene where Drummond says that he pities Hornbeck because he can't understand why Hornbeck doesn't have an idea or belief that moves him the way that Brady had such a strong reaction to a lot of the ideas and beliefs that moved him. Even though Brady and Drummond didn't agree on their beliefs, Drummond still had enough respect for Brady for believing as hard as he did in his ideas. And he can't understand why Hornbeck doesn't have that same ideology, doesn't share those same values of believing in something enough. But at the same time, Hornbeck does recognize that Drummond would be there for them in an instant if something would happen. And one of Hornbeck's last lines to Drummond is, who else would defend my right to be lonely? Hornbeck recognizes that Drummond would support him no matter what he thinks or no matter what he believes. And they both are able to recognize that they are willing to keep the space neutral, that it's okay to disagree with somebody because of what they believe in, but it's also important to be vocal about other ideas and other ways of thinking because there's always opportunities to learn something new. And I think that Inherit the Wind does a really excellent job of tying in both of those sentimentalities. Next up, we are going to highlight the director, Sidney Lumet. According to the article, What Can We Learn From Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, written by Brett Dunham for StudioBinder.com, the article states, In the book Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, the iconic director describes a lens plot as the way your camera tells the story. A lens plot, he says, is like a style guide, a way to make sure everything in the visual serves the story, character, and theme. This filmmaking approach creates a certain level of unity between the script and the film and is often more emotionally satisfying for the audience, resulting in a more unified experience for them. The article continues to state, Lumet breaks the idea of a lens plot into three categories, static, narrative, and elemental. Each type of lens plot is a way to approach your visual storytelling, and great filmmakers understand how to use each of these types in a single film. First up is the static lens plot. This is the overall look of your film, in other words, the visual style of your movie. Lumet believes in the question of how best to present the film to an audience. For an example, should the film be shot in black and white? Should the director or the cinematographer use a handheld camera or a tripod? How gritty or realistic should the lighting be? How beautiful or expressionistic should the lighting be? 
And this process also plays a huge part in the collaboration of the director and the cinematographer because they are able to pick what lenses, lighting, color schemes, and film shots they are going to use to create the static lens. One other really interesting thing about this term is that Lumet believes in the consistency of a film's look, and the word static means balance and equilibrium. And the consistency of film is solely based on the balance of the filmmaking process. Next, we have the narrative lens plot. This filmmaking technique revolves around the variety of evolution. For example, how tension is able to move the climax of a movie. This technique is also really important in the idea of film language and how the emotional components of a film are able to change the visuals of a film. In other words, how the narrative is able to shift the images in a movie. These shifts often consist of the audience feeling the changes in the film rather than seeing the changes. The final technique is called an element lens plot. This technique focuses more on assigning specific looks to different characters, locations, or scenarios. For example, a rich character may be seen by using a wider lens to capture their big living situation, whereas a poor character may be shot in a more claustrophobic fashion to show their smaller living situation. This technique is really interesting because it is used to establish a differentiation in between the characters and the location and creates a distinction between the two. In other words, this type of filmmaking process really does a great job of presenting the different worlds of each character. And this technique drives a good director to become a great director because these directors are able to pay attention to greater detail, which makes for a more thoughtful film. The Cine Lumet film we are going to talk about today is The Verdict. This movie was written by David Mamet and was based on the book by Gary Reed and was directed by Cindy Lamette. This movie is about an outcast, alcoholic Boston lawyer named Frank Galvin who is played by Paul Newman. He sees the chance to salvage his career and self-respect by taking a medical malpractice case to trial rather than settling. The themes of this movie are corruption, redemption, gender roles, and finding justice. According to the article, The Gender Politics of Justice, a semiotic analysis of the verdict written by Anne Kimby for the University of Colorado, the article states, Lumet's films are usually perceived as liberal rather than conservative in their politics, as strongly grounded in a vision of social justice and dedicated to the exposure of corruption in the modern life of institutions and law enforcement. Lumet overly criticizes the abuse privilege of white male patriarchy. The film exposes how law and professional ethics are abused at every turn to support and reinforce the power of a white male property class, whether they are bishops, judges, lawyers, or doctors. This quote leads us into the theme of corruption. Ed Concanon, who is played by James Mason, is the lawyer on the opposing side of the malpractice case. He convinces the other doctors to lie about their involvement in the case, which reinforces the ideology that doctors have to cover up their lies because they don't want to ruin their reputation. Yet they know that they are in the wrong and they are on the wrong side, but continue to lie anyways. And that scene in particular really shows how much they value their reputation as a doctor rather than the well-being of the patients. And it does show how a male patriarchal society, especially when it comes to these big-time jobs when you're a doctor or a lawyer or a bishop or any of the other 
careers that are mentioned in the article that they can be in a position where it's very easy for them to abuse their power and make themselves look better by lying and falling into the traps of corruption. The conflict of this film quickly leads into the theme of redemption. Frank Galvin is an alcoholic, which causes him to lose work, which leads him to lie in order to find work. But once he comes across this case, he realizes the devastating effects of what has happened to this patient, and that makes him realize that he can use his smarts to get back on the right track. And he is the one that is able to really use his power for good. Although Frank lies to get work and Ed Concanon lies to be involved in a specific type of corruption, at least Frank is lying to get work to make money to try and be on the right track again and to try and do something good rather than lying for the sake of lying and doing something dishonest. The article continues to state, from the perspective of feminism, what is also striking about the verdict is the location of compelling, credible testimony in a woman witness. Arrayed against the male-dominated forces of corruption, she brings their power and influence to a standstill in the courtroom climax that concludes the film. Which leads us into the theme of gender roles. Laura Fisher, who is played by Charlotte Rampling, and Caitlin Costello-Price, who is played by Lindsay Krauss, represent the strength of a female opinion up against a male-dominated realm. They are the two female characters in the film who really do carry the weight of the truth that isn't reflected as highly by the male characters. It's very, very interesting to look at gender roles in this film, because this movie is strongly reliant on Frank's narrative and his journey to finding justice and his journey through the roads of redemption. But what is interesting about this film is that the female characters are the ones that end up really being the heroes of the movie. They're the ones that are really able to stand up and make a statement and say that what these doctors did was wrong. Especially when you consider Caitlin's character because Caitlin plays the nurse that quit her job after this incident because she couldn't understand why this happened. And when she goes up to testify, she is the one that tells everybody the truth of what actually happened. Frank was just there to track her down and bring her in and guide her, but she was really the one that took the stand and spoke her truth up against a male-dominated force. The theme of finding justice is incredibly evident in the last scene of the film. Frank Galvin's final speech in the courtroom is a great testimony to the ideas of justice. Galvin quotes in this particular scene, he says, You know, so much of the time we're just lost. We say, please God, tell us what is right, tell us what is true. And there is no justice. The rich win, the poor are powerless. We become tired of hearing people lie, and after a time we become dead, a little dead. We think of ourselves as victims, and we become victims. We become, we become weak. We doubt ourselves, we doubt our beliefs, we doubt our institutions, and we doubt the law. But today you are the law. You are the law. Not some book, not the lawyers, not the marble statue or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are. They are, in fact, a prayer of a fervent and frightened prayer. In my religion, they say, act as if ye had faith, and faith will be given to you. If, if we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. 
This whole entire monologue is by far my favorite scene in the film. I think Caitlin Costello Price's testimony comes at a very, very close second. But this monologue that Frank does at the end of the film basically sets the trajectory for how far he has come regarding his character development in the film. And what this scene represents in particular is that he is telling the jury that we are in control of our own power. And we have to figure out how we are able to use that control to perceive what is right and what is wrong. And how those motives drive us to what we think we should do versus what we actually do. And a lot of what we perceive as what is just and what is right is another ideology of saying that your word is your bond and represents how our actions represent the consistency of our words. In other terms, we have the ability to be on the right side of history if we choose to be. And I think that that's what the film ending represents. There's a very subtle scene at the very end of the film. It's the last scene where Frank is alone in his office reflecting on his decision. But really, he won the case. And the power of that film's ending really does reside more in the courtroom scene and more out of that monologue. And I think that Lumet did a really amazing job of making the deliberate choice in blocking that scene in a particular way where we see the outcome of what these characters had to go through. We see a lot of that inner turmoil and that inner conflict that they've been reduced to. But we also see a lot of the hope and we see a lot of the lessons learned when we are able to stand up for our own truth and know that we are standing up for that truth for all of the right reasons. Moving on to some fun facts. For Inherit the Wind, the buzz about Frederick March's and Spencer Tracy's performances spread around the studio lot and Hollywood to the point that a lot of extras made their way to the set just to see the action. In one instance, the extras were applauding so much at one of March's dramatic speeches that they ruined the take by not waiting until the end. When Stanley Kramer offered the role of E.K. Hornbeck to Gene Kelly, Kelly initially turned it down. Kramer told him that his co-stars would be Frederick March and Spencer Tracy, and Kelly changed his mind. In the scene where Drummond tells the story of his rocking horse, Golden Dancer, to Brady, they are sitting in rocking chairs on the porch of the boarding house. The actors are both rocking their chairs, but are never in sync with each other to emphasize the difference of opinion. Frederick March and Spencer Tracy both played the dual roles of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931 and 1941, respectively. March receives an Academy Award for Best Actor for his betrayal. Some fun facts for the verdict. Cindy Lamette said that if anyone had ever sent him the book to read before he decided to direct the movie, he would have told them that there was no way that the material in the book could have ever been adapted to film. This movie is ranked number four on the American Film Institute's list of the ten greatest films in the genre courtroom drama in June of 2008. Paul Newman's performance in this film is ranked number 19 in Premiere Magazine's 100 Greatest Performances. After the verdict was announced in the film, director Sidney Lumet filmed two versions of the ending. In one version, the final shots we see are of Newman's character walking away from the courtroom in a series of long shots, never seeing what happens after he leaves the courthouse. In the version that was used, we see a sequence after he leaves the courthouse.
Moving on to some movie recommendations of the week. First up is No Time to Die. I finally got around to watching the very last James Bond film in the Daniel Craig series of James Bond. And I think that this film was a really great way for Daniel Craig to retire the role of the character. I loved the way that they brought back a lot of characters and villains and little mini subplots and storylines that were in the previous films to try to tie up a lot of the loose ends which evidently made this film a little bit more memorable for me and I think that the chemistry that Daniel Craig and Leah Sadu who plays Madeline Swan, have is absolutely incredible. I think they are fantastic together and being able to see that relationship come into fruition in a different light and in a light that involves a lot more sensitivity and somewhat a sense of groundedness was absolutely incredible to see and I think that this movie was a really really great way to end the series. Another recommendation I have is Billie Eilish's concert on Disney Plus, Happier Than Ever, A Love Letter to Los Angeles. What was cool about this particular concert and the kind of elements that they brought in to make it into a movie was that they used animation in some sequences and the animation was incredibly vivid and incredibly lively. And just being able to sit and listen to the album and listen to Billy's voice, which is always just so majestic and magical. And she's always had such an interesting tone as a performer. And I loved being able to watch the concert and I loved being able to watch her perform. Last but not least, we have the film Moonlight. This movie came out about five or six years ago and won Best Picture. Kind of bummed it took me a while to get around to seeing the movie, but I'm really glad that I did because I think it has a really great commentary on masculinity and relationships and just a lot of the dynamics that go on in the film are incredibly prevalent to society. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for next week's episode on the legendary work of Robert Redford.